Hey, good morning, Travis. Y'all doing all right? Awesome. Yeah, sounds like you're doing great. Hey, my name is Mitch Tidwell. Uh, I am a, a member here with my family, uh, Olivia and our son, William. And I just want to stop and at the front end just say, hey, thanks for letting us be a part of uh, the family. About, I guess it was three years ago, something like that. We came here as a interim college uh, minister and did that for about 14 months. And then uh, Matt Getty came and and is doing an excellent job, and we just say, hey, let's stick around, because we just knew Matt would need a lot of help. So here we are, we just uh, stuck around. But it's been a joy to be here. Drew, thanks for the opportunity. I know you're traveling back from vacation, but thanks for the opportunity and privilege uh, to preach. Uh, if I know I know uh, many of you in here today, but if you don't know me, this is my, my family. It'll be up here on the screen in just a second. But, uh, but is that, there it is. There it is, right there. There's the whole crew. Uh, there's Matthew and... Uh, no, but I have a little bit about my family. Me and Olivia, we got married uh, three and a half years together, went to high school with each other, knew of each other, didn't know each other, was connected through a friend. And so we've been married for uh, coming up on four years. We have a son, William, who just 16 months, 16 months, 16 months old. And we have another one on the way, November 2nd, which is not even Facebook official yet. So that's you're in the family. So you got that before Facebook did. So we're excited, growing our family, really excited to do it here uh, at Travis. So uh, the sermon this morning is entitled, God Wants Me uh, to Be Happy. And uh, this sermon today is really, uh, in, in some parts, uh, we're going to walk through the Beatitudes. If you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew 5. We're going to walk through that. But really what today is, is I'm going to preach a message, but it's also going to be a sort of devotion in the fact that what God's been doing in my own personal life over the last six months, um, what he's been doing just in, in, in the Beatitudes uh, in my own life and, and really uncovering a lot of things in my life that I really was not aware of. In fact, when I was in, uh, I think it was like, it was either middle school or early high school. I've always been terrible at math. And I think I've told you guys this before in another sermon. Always been terrible at math. Took algebra two, three times. I don't even think you have to take it anymore. I'm not sure about that, but took it three times. Finally got it. When numbers, when I start messing with numbers, like it just things that get wild in my head. They just, it just doesn't work for me. But there was this one assignment that I got and I remember getting the assignment and I just started running through it. And it was really shocking to me because as I was running through this assignment, I was thinking to myself, I finally get this. Like I finally understand math because it's, it's always been so confusing to me. So I'm, I'm going through the assignment. I'm feeling good about myself. I've got it all together. I turn that assignment in only to uh, be giving it back, and I just absolutely failed it. I mean, I did the whole thing wrong. And I remember thinking once that assignment, once I got that grade back, thinking to myself, like, I'm totally missing it. Like, I was pretty sure I had this right. But there's somewhere along the way, I missed a turn, I missed a lesson, I missed something because I am totally doing this wrong. And I imagine there's probably some times in your life where you've kind of come across that, where you felt like you had a pretty good grip on things and, and things were going well, only to realize later on you got a piece of humble pie and you realize, hey, I just really don't think I have this, this figured out. If, if you've never been there, just get married. You'll figure that out pretty quick. You don't have everything figured out. And so that's, I thought, man, I am doing this wrong. And I remember at the beginning of this year, I wanted to, uh, just wanted to camp out in the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so I just want to take the whole year, just read it over and over and over again, just to try to ingrain what Jesus said just into my heart, mind, and soul. And honestly, for six months, I just really haven't gotten out of the Beatitudes um, because 
as I read the Beatitudes, I can't help but think, I think I'm doing this whole thing wrong. When you, when you look at the Beatitudes and you see the very first thing that Jesus says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. That ain't me. You know, blessed are those that mourn. No, I, I absolutely run away from that stuff. I don't, I don't want to mourn. It says, blessed are the, the humble. I mean, I pretend to be sometimes. Uh, maybe, at, you know, on Sundays at 11.15. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I read my Bible regularly, but I don't know if I'm actually hungering and thirsting for, for righteousness. Merciful. Oh, it's always last on my spiritual gift inventory. Pure in heart. Depends on the day. Peacemaker. More like peacekeeper. Persecuted. You know, not a chance. Not a chance. And so if this is what Jesus had in mind when he, when he talks about what it means to be Christian, I, I really think that I'm completely missing it. And I'm, I'm just talking about me personally, just my own personal journey through this. I feel like I'm completely missing it because as I began to read this, I really actually began to feel hopeless. Jesus, if this is what you are requiring of me, I can't do it. I can't. To be poor in spirit, to mourn, to meekness, to, or to humbleness, and to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to mercy, to all these kind of things. Like, that's your requirement of me? There's no way I can keep that. And it led me to a place of feeling utterly hopeless. And I want to show you this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what it says. He says, the Sermon on the Mount, in other words, it comes to us and it says, there is a mountain that you have to scale the heights you have to climb, and the first thing you must realize as you look at the mountain, which you're told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. So I started, I started praying, and I just started asking the Lord, so Lord, I I really do, when I look at this, I feel hopeless looking at the Beatitudes because I don't embody any of this. And would you just do something? And like, I realize I can't, but can, would you just like do something in me to get me to this place where I can embody what Jesus says we should embody? Because I really believe that the Beatitudes is the ideal Christian. is what Jesus has in mind when he thinks about Christianity. Father, would you get me to a place where I could embody this? And I, and I even said this too. I said, Father, would you... Take it easy on me. Because when you pray a prayer of asking God to make you into the Beatitudes, what you're asking is you're asking God to take you by the hand and walk you straight into the valley. And to show you what it means to be poor in spirit, to show you what it means to mourn, to show you what it means to be meek, and show you what it means to truly hunger for the things that matter most, to show you what it means to be merciful to people, to show you what it means to be of pure mind and heart, show you what it means to be a peacemaker and perhaps even lead you to a place of being persecuted. And, and over the last six months, I have, I, you know, guys, friends, when I walk into a room, I want to be the most confident and competent person in the room. I always want to be that person. And I always want to check every box. I want to get everything right except math. And I just want to be confident and competent. And what it required of me is just to say, God, I can't do it. Would you do it in me? Would you make me the person that Jesus wants me to be? And so as I began to pray this, I realized that my depravity as a man of just even leading myself, I, 
most, I think the biggest point that I realized it was actually being a husband. I realized I cannot be a husband without the power of the Holy Spirit. I cannot be a good Christian husband without a complete and utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. I'm too stubborn. I'm too selfish. I'm too about my own agenda to do it. He began to show me just the depravity and just how, how little I knew about even in my workplace and raising William, our son, who's 16 months, who is the most sleeping 13 hours a day, most con- content little kid, and he is total alpha male now. I had the water on the faucet the other day on complete hot. He just sticks his hand in her and just looks at me. I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> help me. I mean, that is, I can't keep my hand in her there. He's just staring at looking at me like, what do you got? And through these life experiences, I feel like God has been discipling me through the Beatitudes and showing me what it really means to be happy. You know, the word blessed that Jesus uses here is a, is a term that actually means happy. It means carefree. It, it, it means to be fortunate, but it's talking about it here. Jesus is talking about it here in the context of being a, a citizen of God's kingdom, not a citizen necessarily of the world. It's when you read these, these Beatitudes, what it, when you look at them, like, you kind of feel like, I think this is like upside down. I feel like, like these aren't right. In fact, the American Beatitudes would probably go something like this, that blessed are the rich in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who are happy for they will be comforted. Blessed are the prideful for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for success and gratification for they will be filled. Blessed are the driven for they will receive mercy. Blessed are those full of knowledge, for they will see the mind of God. Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are the safe, for they will inherit the kingdom. I think what Jesus has in mind for happiness is completely different than what you and I define as happiness. In fact, Daniel Doriani says it this way. He says, we know that Jesus does not have ordinary happiness, the happiness that comes from food or entertainment in mind. Jesus' happy disciples are poor and hungry. They mourn and suffer persecution. For disciples, happiness means wholeness and integrity, even in the darkest hour. So it's a happiness, which means you're totally liberated from the bondage of this world, and you know that you're actually a citizen of another. And so what Jesus is doing right off the bat in the Sermon on the Mount is he's introducing the Beatitudes, as he's telling the disciples and everybody that are listening, is that my kingdom is not like this kingdom. And what Jesus is telling us here today, church, is that his kingdom is not like this worldly kingdom. It's not like the USA kingdom. It's not like your own individual kingdom. It is not anything like that. In fact, if you'll flip that upside down, that's what Jesus' kingdom is like. So in our Western culture, we have a tendency is what we'll do when we take this list, when we look at it, is we'll take a look at it and we'll turn it into a checklist of like, I need to mark this, I need to mark this, I need to mark this. And I need to mark this. The only problem with that is we actually cannot fulfill the Beatitudes without the power of the Holy Spirit. Like when you look at that, you're supposed to look at it and say, I can't do that, but realize that God can. And so the Beatitudes are what it means to be a Christian. And the first thing it tells us is, like we said, we can't do it. It's not a checklist of right and wrongs, of do's and don'ts. What this Beatitudes is doing is it's calling us to be people dependent on the Holy Spirit to be transformed into the person Jesus wants us to be. So here we go. The very first one in verse three, uh, we see the first three, these first three verses are kind of connected here. And what it's kind of talking about is, is, is basically if I had to sum them up, it's like blessed are those who pour themselves out. Look what verse three says. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
You know, poor is not necessarily talking about physical poverty, although I think physical poverty can lead to spiritual poverty, but it's really talking about spiritual poverty. And what it's, and what he, the kind of he's getting at here is it's realizing to be poverty in spirit means that you're realizing that the world is not as you thought it was. Things are not what you thought they would be. Your worldview, your understanding of truth, your understanding of singleness, your understanding of marriage, your life in general, it is not what you thought it would be. And it's a reality that you cannot be who God has designed you to be as a human in your own ability. You simply cannot do it. You can't do it. You need reforming and you don't have the power to do so. I remember when I was 22 years old, I, I was uh, operating a business with my family and you know, I had kind of gotten out of high school and I didn't go straight into college. I went straight into business. And I, I, got, I got this place of just like my philosophy of life where I just thought, and you hear this all the time, but just follow your heart. That was very much that kind of young millennial. That was the philosophy of life. If you will just follow your heart, then there's going to be fulfillment on the end of this. And so it's the idea that if I will do what I want and I will get what I want, then I will always be satisfied. But what I found out is it actually left me poor and empty. And I think what happens in this world is with these worldviews and these things that we long for and these things that we strive for, whether it's a figuring out your singleness or your marriage or, or your business or your legacy, all these things. And at the end of it, if we try to figure it out on our own, it actually leads us to a place of emptiness and even a place of poverty in spirit. In fact, I don't think I could have got saved unless I came to a poverty of spirit over my worldview and what I thought was true and right. I don't think I could. So when a person gets to this place of realizing this wholeheartedly, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is yours. That before we can receive the kingdom, before we can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to first take the cup that we fill with all kinds of stuff and just begin to empty it out and become a poverty in spirit. I remember at the beginning of this year, I think one of the things I was so broken over was just the fact that I, I cannot be the husband I need to be to Olivia in my own power. And what I realized most of all about it was that I just needed less, there just needed to be less of Mitch. There needed to be less of Mitch's agenda, less of Mitch's way, less of all that stuff. And I realized what God was calling me to was just to empty, he just wanted to empty me out and leave me in a place of poverty and spirit because that was the only way I could truly love my wife the way that she needs to be loved. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The second one, it says this, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. You know, when you get to a place of being poverty of spirit, it actually leads you to a place of mourning, or at least if you allow it to do its work. Because, you know, I, I think it's sometimes what I'll do is when I become poor in spirit, if I, I become just at a loss for something, a loss of life of my own way, of my own competence, of my own confidence, what I tend to do is think, well, I need to do something to make up for it. When in fact, what God really wants us to do is mourn over the fact that we don't have it all figured out. That we can't do this life on our own. That we can't be the men and the women that we need to be in and of our own power and of our own confidence. We just simply can't do it. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. We have to mourn over the state of our life and our sin and bring us into a place of mourning. We mourn because life is not as it seemed and there's nothing we can do about it. We're mourn over the state of our poverty and our sinfulness. You know, as I said, mourning has been so foreign to me. 
And the reason why morning is so foreign, because I'm, I'm not a feeler. If you know the Myers-Briggs, I'm a thank, you have, you know, thanker and feelers, that third category. I'm a high thinker. So if anything gets a little feely, I am out the door. Like, I'm gone. <laughs> we are running. That's probably my, that's, that's probably my biggest issue <laughs> in marriage. Uh, but I realize mourning, because here's what happens. When you become poor in spirit and you mourn over something, it's like God has to take you through this processing and mourning over a, a former way. And what I've done my whole life is when I become poor in spirit, I will actually run to try to build up my confidence and competence in some kind of area. And really what God wants me to do is settle in it and realize, Mitch, you don't have it all figured out. Mitch, at the end of this road is not what you thought it would be. And in fact, one of the, another illustration I could give you is recently, man, I have a, I had a dog for 12 years, Luke, love him to death. Would have named my firstborn son Luke, but I named my dog Luke. Love that dog. 12 years, just the perfect companion. And I lost that dog like two months ago, a month and a half ago, and it just crushed me. And I sense the Lord, even through the loss of a pet, that just tell me, Mitch, I want you to learn how to mourn. Because if you don't learn how to mourn, then you can't be changed. Then what you're going to keep trying to do is try to do your own way over and over and over and over again. And you need to learn how to mourn over your, over your own depravity. And just the fact, because, you know, the big thing with Lucas, I was like, man, that was the best dog in the world. I'll never get to see that dog again. I love that dog. And just mourn the fact that he's never coming back. I don't run out and go grab a new one. or anything. I just mourn over the loss of it. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do here. But God promised that those who reach this place will receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we can't, do, we can't receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit when we mourn if we're always running to the next thing to gratify us. You just can't do it. Third thing is this. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. That when you reach a place, or uh, meekness as some of your Bible translations say, so when you reach a place of being poor in spirit, you, you mourn and it breeds this meekness and humility in your life. And what happens is you actually transition from this kind of self kingdom to actually a, a, a selfless kingdom that you begin to seek out other people and you, God begins to turn your heart and your eyes towards others. You don't become a weak person, you become a meek person. It's like all of your personality, your strength and your drive under the lordship of Jesus because you realize this is not your world, this is... This is God's world. You know, I always thought about that, that, man, if I become poor in spirit and I mourn over something, that just seems to me like kind of weak, like you're not going anywhere doing that. But actually what God is driving you to is meekness and humility that now you realize this is not my world. This kingdom is not mine. This is God's kingdom. And I need to focus my eyes not on self, but out. Because it's funny, we think that if, okay, if, I, if I'm poor in spirit and I'm mourning and I'm, and I'm being humbled, then there's something I need that I lack and I need to go get it on my own. But what it actually says is those who are humble, those who are meek actually inherit the earth, which means God delivers to you what you need, what, you, what he knows you need, not what you think you need. He delivers it to you. Daniel Doriani says this, that the mark of meekness is not the absence of assertiveness, it's the absence of self-assertion. That it's not that we just become passive believers, it's that we actually just don't, life is not all about us. That it's about God and his kingdom. So here what we see in these first three verses of poor in spirit of mourning and of meekness and humility is God kind of takes this cup that we have of ourselves, you've probably seen the illustration, but we've put in 
all these wants, these desires, these things that will satisfy us. We put in money, we put in relationships, we put in a career, we put in all these things. And Jesus says, if you want to be a Christian, the first three steps, if you want to call them that, they're not really steps, but is you just got to take all that and just, just empty it. You got to empty it all out. Because what we do is we fill that cup thinking this will fill me, but the only problem is is that cup's got a bunch of holes in it and it just never, ever, ever fills. And God's just saying, you got to empty it. Empty the cup. Empty it. Y'all, this world is designed to leave you empty. It's designed to lead you to mourning. And I, I think in some ways what life does is it functions like the Old Testament law and that it leads you to realize I can't do this, but God can you can turn from poverty in spirit. You can double down on discipline. But the truth is that pride will turn into, it'll turn into pride. And you've got to release yourself to poverty of spirit, to mourning, to meekness and humility, to let God do his work in your life. So if you're going to be who God designed you to be, you must be empty first. And that can only happen by the work of the spirit. So you got emptiness. Then you go over to verse 6 and you see that what happens. You're, you're empty. You're, you're hungry. And what does God do? He begins to fill. Look at verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, whenever I go on road trips, which is actually a lot just with, with my job, is I love stopping to get those, uh, they're like, uh, what are they, like Harbo, like gummy bears. And I always think those puppies are going to satisfy me every time. They leave me sick every time. I mean, I get through like half a bag. I mean, we're not talking about the small ones. We're talking maybe, you know, half gallon or so. I don't know how big those things are. Maybe less than that, a couple of pints. But I get through half and it just leaves me sick every time. And I think like that's such a picture of the world and the things that I go after in this world is I think, hey, let me run in this lane for a second. Let me see if this will fill me. Let me do this. Let me see if this will fill me. Let me see if this relationship or this career or, or this, if I could get this much money, if I could get all these things, then somehow that's going to fill me. And it just doesn't. In fact, it leaves you at a place of sickness. But what God says is that if we will allow the Holy Spirit to do its work in our life, of becoming poor, of mourning, of meekness, that God will fill us. And it says he fills us with righteousness. When we are filled with righteousness, that we are fulfilled. You know, that back when I was 23, I, I know that was my worldview came to a crash. It came to a halt. And part of that was because I started attending a church, which is pretty special. So when I was, we were, when I was at that uh, restaurant, that's where our family business was, uh, there was a, a guy who I had known as a, as a kid, but he was a deacon in church. He actually showed up today, Gabe, right over here. Um, you know, he just came and visited me every week and just kept inviting me to church over and over and over again. He kept eating our food every week. I know the food wasn't that good, so he must have been a Christian. So he kept coming back. And, uh, and ultimately, over the course of that year, you know, I got saved. And it was like for the very first time in my life that I experienced the feeling that I had longed for my whole life. I talked to, I was at a, teaching at a, a retreat last weekend with, with Olivia. And there was a young guy there who has just graduated high school. Uh, but he was telling me, I was like, man, tell me your story. And he was like, hey, he's like, I was, um, he, he kind of goes through a story. He's a software programmer. And he goes, you know, I just thought that somehow all of this was going to fill me. And it just never, ever did. And he goes, but man, when I placed my faith in Jesus, he goes, for the very first time in my life, I felt fulfilled. 
And that's what God promises. If we are people willing to allow the Holy Spirit to empty us out, he will fill the longings of our heart according to his righteousness. For you in here today, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're longing for something, maybe you're sitting in here in this pew thinking, let me see if what this preacher guy is gonna say is gonna, gonna fix me or help me. Here's the only thing I can give you, that if you want true fulfillment, if you want living water, if you want the bread that will you'll never cause you to go hungry again, you have to trust in Jesus. Do you have a God who is holy and that loves you? And we are not holy, which means we're separated from him. But God didn't send his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to pay our penalty so that we could have life and have it eternally. You trust in him. For those of us in here today and you say, Mitch, I'm walking with Jesus. Uh, you know, I, I read my Bible faithfully. I pray. Here's what I want to say is if you're in here today and you just feel like, you know, I don't feel like I embody these beatitudes and I want to long for righteousness. Surrender yourself. Eat the word. Pray on your knees, fast to loosen the bonds of wickedness. Do whatever it takes to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I promise you, God will fill you. I promise you. And look what happens next. So once that cup is filled, God empties it out. He fills you up, but then he sends you out. Look at verse seven. It says this. It says, blessed are those that are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, if we're left in verses three through five, then that can leave us in, you know, I, I'm just speaking of my self-personally here, but it can lead us to even self-shaming and condemnation and self-pity. Because sometimes when I get to these places, again, I, my personality style, if I don't feel competent, that really, that's big insecurity for me. I want to feel competent. And if I don't, if I'm stuck in those verses three, four, and five, and I'm not being filled with righteousness, what I can run into is self-shaming tactics where I'll shame myself and guilt myself and I'll do all these things to kind of make myself a better person. That's not the way to go. Don't do that. It says, so here's what we see is when we are filled with righteousness, it actually produces in us the ministry of mercy and it creates an empathy for us and for, with others. You've been low and you can meet other people in their needs. You know, I believe that mercy and compassion is the hallmark trait of a Christian. I really, truly believe that. And I think what happens, we have two pendulums that sometimes we can be uh, a people that are, um, you know, that are on, uh, we can be people on one side where we're uh, more of like a, more of like a peacekeeper and we just try to like, just try to keep the peace and we're not really doing actual, uh, we're not really not actually doing actual ministry. We're just trying to keep this facade of kindness. So ministry means you're actually jumping into the lives of people and showing them the compassion and love of Jesus, people that wouldn't otherwise know it. You know, Jesus came soft and tender with the lost and hurting, but he actually came hard with the disciples and the religious uh, elite. And so, you know, I think about, and I, this is my own personal life here, but someone who's always leading out in judgment, what I found out in my own walk is that usually means I'm walking out of, I've outpaced my intimacy with Jesus and my obedience to Jesus, if judgment is leading the, leading the train. <clears throat> so we're reminded, man, when, when mercy, when God begins to work mercy in us, we're reminded of all the people we've met along the way who have experienced heartache and hardship and separation from God, and we long to show them mercy. And I want to ask you this question, like, what, what would your home look like if you became a person that embodied mercy? Like, what would your workplace look like? What would your school look like or what would your relationships look like if you became someone that embodied mercy on a regular basis 
Like, I just think that could really change the world. You become someone that you see lostness as not this thing to judge, but this place that you want to step into and show the love of Jesus. That's what you want to do. Your heart breaks for what that people would know and experience Jesus. Here's a, uh, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pureness of heart means it's, it's, the, it's the idea that you're without hypocrisy, that there is a single devotion, that there is pureness. And it's the idea that, that you, if you get to a fork in the road, you got your way, you got God's way, that you choose God's way every single time. You know, uh, when I was um, single and I was praying, you know, for, for, to the Lord for a wife, I, I asked for three things. I thought two were pretty godly, one was pretty vain, but I wanted a, a wife with a uh, pretty heart, pretty face, and would love Jesus more than me. That was my three requests. Like, God, would you just give me that woman? Uh, and I just kept praying that <clears throat> over and over and over. And I think probably the biggest treat to me as a husband is to find a wife that does love Jesus more than me. Because here's the deal. I know I'm going to blow it. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to be the perfect husband. I am going to be selfish. I am going to be all these things. And to have someone that could love Jesus more than me was just the absolute crucial thing. I wanted someone that, with a pure devotion, and the Lord granted that to me. And what would that mean in your other relationships in life or workplace, school, whatever you may be, that if you were someone walking with a pureness of heart and a pureness of mind? I really believe that the world is longing for that. Because you know that you work in places or you're in schools or you're in places or uh, maybe even in families where you're just like, man, I wish this person was devoted to the Lord. Life would just be so much sweeter. We do. It'd be sweeter. Verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. So in this view, this has to be the person who has been purified through the process of the Beatitudes so that they know where to make peace and to do so with a pure motive. Now, I think this is where it could get a little bit tricky in that, you know, we, we got a pendulum here too, is that on one side you have that peacekeeper, which is like, hey, I, we wanna keep this, this idea of peace, but let's not deal with anything that's under the layers of what's going on here. So if we can just keep this facade, then everything's gonna be okay. And for that person, maybe they just don't know how to handle how to deal with conflict or how to handle really true peacemaking. Uh, but that's kind of one side. And then on the other side, you have somebody who's quarrelsome, who just kind of really wants to start a fight, honestly. And to become someone that's a peacemaker means that you're kind of in that middle there and you're ready to fight for righteousness no matter the cost, but you're not looking for a fight. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, a peacemaker is one who not only does not make trouble, but who goes out of his way to produce Peace. So someone who's a peacemaker is who's willing to suffer wrong and injustice for what is right. You know, friends, you know that peacekeeping doesn't fix anything. It hides an issue just to rear its ugly head later on, and, and that's really where a lot of relationships fell, but we have a hard time doing the hard work to make peace in this, this world. You know, one of the things that, you know, I've really learned this, you know, speak, you know I'm speaking a lot of illustrations here about marriage because this is just where God is kind of teaching me all this is through the context of marriage with Olivia. Is, you know, when you get married, you bring in so many insecurities into that relationship. And if, if you don't, if you're not willing to fight through those insecurities, um, you're, you're in trouble. 
because what you're going to do is you're just going to keep putting a sweep that under the rug, sweep it under the rug, sweep it under the rug, sweep it under the rug, and eventually that's going to blow up. And if we want to fight for righteousness in our marriage, we have to be willing to have those hard conversations to get to a place of peace so that we don't ever get to war, you know, in our home. And I, want to, I just want to ask you the question is like, are you a person that fights to make peace where you're at? You're not looking for a fight. You're not looking just to upset people. You're not looking to be quarrelsome. But are you someone that fights for righteousness and justice in the context of your own life? Because that's who Jesus says, that's, that's what it means to be Christian. And the last one here, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You know, I can't help but notice that to be Christian, you have to be a, a peacemaker, but also be Christian means you will be persecuted. That's like the end of the road, which is not very exciting, honestly, to look at. But it says, <clears throat> so as a Christian, that when you make peace, you actually invite persecution. So when you stand for what's right, and I want to paint this, when you stand for what's right, whether it's something that's happened culturally in the world, or let's be completely honest, even if you're challenging a religious tradition that's not necessarily biblical, but it's been around a long time, you will face persecution. It'll happen. Jesus says that's the end of the road, that when you are emptied of self, when you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being molded by mercy and purity and peacemaking, the end of that road is persecution. Why? Because you are ultimately making peace in the world. You are. You know, I was at that retreat last weekend. There was a couple of uh, young students who were early 20s, but they had come over here from Italy and uh, I was talking to him because I was like, man, how did you guys get involved in an evangelical church, being in Italy? Because big, you know, Catholic church is massive over there. And uh, so they're like, yeah, funny story. One of the guys was, uh, mom was Italian. Uh, dad was uh, Ethiopian. He grew up in Ethiopian in a Pentecostal church. They brought that church over here, over to Italy. Uh, he gets saved and baptized and he invites his friend, this young lady, to come to the, uh, see the baptism. Well, as she's watching the baptism, she's really just floored and blown away of realizing, I've never understood the gospel. And so she trusts in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, and she realizes they, they're disciples. They said, okay, you, part of your next step of obedience is getting baptized. And so she, in boldness, I mean, man, God bless this girl, in boldness goes to her parents and says, hey, I have found Jesus I have trusted in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life, and I think, and I know convictionally, my next step is I have to get baptized, and her parents were crushed, just absolutely crushed. Her mom ends up coming to the baptism, but then she decides, she goes, I really feel like I need to learn more, so she actually comes over here to study biblical languages, and her parents have basically just said, hey, we love you, but we're going to love you from a distance, and just, just kind of wipe their hands. Truth is, is when you walk in righteousness, when you walk in purity, when you are a peacemaker, the end of the road is persecution, and even from the people that love you the most. And that's the truth. That's we see that through the life of Jesus, that Jesus came to establish righteousness in the end. It costs him, and the end for each of us is it will cost us too if we truly walk in righteousness. So what's the point of this whole thing? Here's, I got one point for you, and, uh, and then I'm done here is don't run from the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Don't run from the Holy Spirit's work in your life. 
It is so humbling for me to preach the Beatitudes because in some ways I don't completely understand them. I don't know how to completely obey them because God is just still informing me and teaching me. But the one thing that God has drilled in me over and over and over again is just let go, let God, and let the Holy Spirit guide you. Because these cannot be done. You cannot fulfill these. You cannot embody these without the Holy Spirit's work in your life. You can't do it. Because when we don't run from the Holy Spirit's work, it's when we become the happy disciples that Jesus has envisioned in these Beatitudes. In order to be God, who God is calling you to be, you have to embody what Jesus says, embody. The bad news is you can't. The good news is God can, and he will do it. Jeffrey, if you guys want to come on up. So here's what I want to ask you today. I want to, give you some, I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts here. You know, you may be where I was at in that math class and maybe thinking, you know, maybe I don't have this figured out. Maybe I totally don't have this Christianity thing nailed down. Here's my, 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 my one encouragement to you is please don't run from it. Please don't run from it. If life has left you at a place of feeling helpless, hopeless, you're wondering how does this get better, allow that to affect you. My whole life I've tried to run from that. Allow that to affect you. Allow that to set in. Be poor in spirit, mourn, allow it to make you humble. Don't run from this, settle in it, because when you run from this, you actually run from what it means to be Christian. That's what Jesus says. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. When this happens, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Center your life on the gospel, eat his word, spend time on your knees in prayer and fasting, loosen the bonds of wickedness in your life and just ask God to fill you. Cause he will, I know he will. He is good on his promises. He is every time, every time. Then watch the fruit of the spirit work itself in your life. With mercy, with purity, with peacemaking and even possibly persecution. You know, I hope at the end of this that you don't think, hey, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Uh, no, you need to hear this. We, we all need to hear this. When Jesus preached those Beatitudes, he wasn't shooting over your head so you'd go achieve it. He was shooting over your head so you'd realize you can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can in and through your life. And he wants to do it. So if you're here today and you're at the end, or you just say, you know what? I'm a little too self-confident. I dare you. I dare you to pray the prayer, God, would you make me the blessed person? And just put your seatbelt on and get ready for the ride to be who God has made you to be.